Good evening. I'm Graham Allison, the director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and it's a great honor to welcome home tonight uh, Ash Carter. Ash is the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Uh, he uh, grew up uh, in this institution, uh, was an assistant professor here, uh, became a professor here, was the Ford Foundation professor, was director of the Belfer Center, was the chair of the uh, international and global affairs concentration that a number of students are here. There's one of the pillars of this uh, institution and somebody of whom we're very proud. He served as Deputy Secretary of Defense, the number two person, for first Leon Panetta and now for Chuck Hagel. The number two person in the Defense Department is known in that five-sided Pentagon Palace or puzzle palace, as the person who, quote, runs the building. Now that's euphemism for managing with fine control some 2.4 million people who nominally work for, in any case are paid by, the Defense Department. That's about 1.4 in uniform and another 800,000 civilians. So one out of every two federal employees actually works for Ash, running the building. He also is responsible for a budget that has a baseline of about 529 billion, and then if you've got sequestered, it gets a little bit more complicated. And then they get paid extra for wars. So there's another 80 or 85 billion for the war in Afghanistan. So all together, that's about 600 billion. When we get to the Q&As, I'm gonna put a question to people, so I'll give you a chance to think about it in advance. How much is a billion, and then how much is 600 billion? Can you translate that into anything any human being could imagine being responsible for? But the Deputy Secretary of Defense is actually responsible for giving an account of all those funds. And if this were an appropriation subcommittee, you can be sure there'd be some smart ass congressman or senator asking a question about this last 50 or 100 or 500 dollars and what happened to this and how it was done and otherwise. And Ash would give a extremely credible answer whether he actually knew or not. Okay. So in any case, uh, he's exactly the kind of person we would hope that would uh, be at the Kennedy School, would grow up at the Kennedy School, would go out from the Kennedy, would teach at the school, would build intellectual capital here, would then go and have a chance to serve the nation, and then at some time we hope come back to the Kennedy School. So let's give a warm welcome to Ash Carter. Thank you, Graham. I, I did grow up here, and um, uh, it is so wonderful to be back and to see so many friends, uh, so many colleagues uh, that I've worked with over the years. And, you know, it's Graham who built this place uh, and um, continues just tirelessly to work on behalf of this institution. And Graham, I just a pleasure and a privilege to be back with you and to see all the faces out there in the audience because the other thing that... Um, I see every day is the, in a sense, the fruits of my labor, our labors, in the students who work for and with me. Uh, 
My special assistant is a Kennedy School graduate. Uh, the secretary's special assistant is a Kennedy School graduate. Uh, he's about to take on a couple of military assistants from the Kennedy School. Uh, and everywhere I go, uh, camps, posts, stations, everywhere around Washington, whatever department of government, there are our people. Uh, and I'm so wonderfully proud of them and what they're contributing. And it's not just here in the United States or in Washington. Uh, <clears throat> I was uh, uh, a couple of years ago in Tokyo meeting with the Minister of Defense of Japan. And he said, hey, Ash, come down the hall with me. I mean, I got a surprise for you. I went down the hall and he opened the door and there was a room full of my former students, about half civilian, half military, and working for him. So I see him everywhere I go and it makes me so immensely uh, proud. Uh, this is a week where if you're a part of this community, you feel that especially. And so even though I was not here uh, this week, uh, you know, this is where I spent a lot of my life, uh, raised two children, uh, have many friends, and um, love Boston. So I took it personally. Uh, uh, what happened last Monday, and it's not the subject of my talk uh, tonight, but I just wanted to say uh, that it is personal to me in that sense, and in one other sense. Uh, I, uh, my wife Stephanie and I, uh, go Saturdays to the hospitals and um, you know we've been doing that for four years uh, now and also to Dover where the fallen return uh, so I've met with many wounded um, by IEDs hundreds and hundreds uh, and their families uh, and with the families of fallen heroes when they come home. And, you know, you never get used to it. Um, and uh, you can never fully know what they are feeling, try as you might. But um, I do have some idea of how uh, the folks directly affected by the IED last Monday uh, are experiencing that, and I, uh, w one thing occurred to me that I'll share, share with you um, with respect to the injuries sustained as a result of an IED. We now know those injuries very well, and if there's anything at all good about being at war uninterruptedly for 10 years, it's that we've learned a great deal. Um, and particularly in the matter of amputations, uh, I'm very familiar uh, with that. And I'll just tell you a, a story. I was down at Brooks Army Medical Center, which is our principal center down in San Antonio. Uh, and I was talking to the medical director of the center that um, is, works with amputees and prostheses, about in which we've made absolutely fantastic progress in the last 10 years. Uh, and he said that he used to try to answer the question, will I be able to skateboard, play tennis, go swimming, ride horses, uh, whatever. And he says, now I've stopped trying to answer that. And he says, I just say, when they ask me that, I say, you'll be, if you want to, you will. 
and to an extraordinary degree that proves to be the case. And so I hope the people here uh, were affected here last Monday benefit in some measure from that experience. And I guess the last thing I wanted to say is we in the Defense Department were not the lead at all for the federal response, and of course it was mostly local first responders. I just wanted to salute members of the Massachusetts National Guard who were ours, who made their contribution, but above all, the state and local law enforcement uh, here in, in, in Boston, real heroes and uh, just amazing talent and dedication. So hats off uh, to them on behalf of myself and Secretary Hagel and the entire department. Um, last time I spoke here at the Kennedy School, it was a couple of years ago, and uh, I focused on uh, Afghanistan and the, Af the, the then surge in Afghanistan and how we were trying to manage and execute that major strategic um, move. So that was a few years ago. Tonight I wanna talk about the need, the, or the imperative for us in the Defense Department to turn a strategic corner from that era uh, dominated by Iraq and Afghanistan from which we're that first post 9-11 era to the challenges and opportunities that will define our future in security. That great strategic transition which we need to make coincides with a need to absorb some reduction in defense spending. We understand that as a contribution to deficit reduction uh, and that also requires a change in the way we do business. Those two great historical currents are coming together. Uh, <clears throat> and my view is that they can, if managed properly, reinforce one another. And that is the task before us. And I wanted to talk tonight about the first of those currents, really mostly the strategic transition. For the better part of a decade, we in the Department of Defense have been riveted of necessity every day, and I've been as much a part of this uh, uh, as anyone, and on two wars of a particular kind, counterinsurgency, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and also on assembling strong defenses against terrorism all of which we accomplished with considerable ingenuity and success. Whatever you thought about those wars and their inception, uh, I hope you agree with me that from my point of view in the engine room, the performance was exceptional. Our people, the performance of the force, that's been truly extraordinary. But now one of those wars has ended and the other in Afghanistan for sure has not ended. Uh, and I can't take my mind off it any day. Um, as long as there are people in harm's way, that's got to be a major preoccupation for me. On the other hand, it, we are, we do have a plan to transition uh, security to uh, Afghanistan over the next couple of years and wind that war 
down, not to end it, but to wind it down uh, very considerably. As for countering terrorism, our responsibilities there, that'll never end. That'll always be a priority for those of us charged with providing security. As long as there is humanity, there'll be the problem of the few against the many and the aberrant against everyone else. And uh, those who would seek to disrupt civilization, as we saw here in Boston. So that'll be a challenge for us in the security business, as long as there is humankind. On the other hand, it is also true that since 9-11, we have very greatly improved our capabilities. There's no, no comparison in any dimension between how good we were on 9-11 and how good we are now. And I'm not saying we can stop uh, improving and innovating uh, and so forth, um, but um, the level of preoccupation that we had in the first post 9-11 decade is not required of us in the next decade. So with all that behind us, uh, while we've been doing those things, particularly Iraq and Afghanistan, the world hasn't stood still, and technology hasn't stood still, and our friends and enemies haven't stood still. So now it's time to turn that strategic corner and focus on the future, and in some ways to catch up with those changes. And with that in mind, the president introduced last year new strategic guidance to us in the Department of Defense uh, <clears throat> on how we should make that transition from the era of Iraq and Afghanistan to the opportunities and challenges that will define our future. And he had a few tenets, and uh, I want to share them with you and then focus on one in particular. But the first one was that as we draw down from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, our force needs to make a, a very difficult transition from a large uh, rotational counterinsurgency-based force to a leaner, more agile, more flexible, and ready force for the future. Uh, that's not to say there's anything wrong with the force we built for Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, it was the right force for the period. Uh, this is a different period. And as we make that, as, as we made that change, <clears throat> the president asked us to bear in mind and make sure we saved all we had learned so with, with such difficulty in that era. First of all, the tremendous strength of an all-volunteer force. Uh, second, our ability to forward deploy and rotate forces as needed. Uh, next, the use of special operations forces, their integral application, modern operations. Next, the contribution of the Guard and Reserve. You know, we use the Guard and Reserve in this era in a way never foreseen, and they performed superbly. Superbly. Uh, I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan many times. You could never tell the difference between an active duty and reserve com uh, component uh, unit in terms of their proficiency and dedication and everything else. Uh, and we need to save that and figure out where we go with that going forward. 
Uh, next is fusing intelligence and operations. You see it every day. Nobody else can do that. Uh, it's much better than we could have done 10 years ago. And we're very, very good at that. So all that legacy we bring to the future. And the president wanted to make sure that we preserve that which we had built, even though we move on to apply it to other needs. Second thing the president said, and the, uh, President Obama was very insistent on this in all of our interactions with him, is that we protect investments in the future, that we continue to be the department that is the firstest with the mostest in technology and innovation. And the reason for that is it's very easy when you're making a change like this to follow the first in uh, or last in, first out principle of bureaucratic budget change. So whatever has the shallowest roots gets torn out first. And that's exactly the wrong way to do things. And the president understood that and uh, directed us to make sure we're not eating our seed corn in this period of change. So what does that mean specifically? I mentioned Special Operations Forces. We are going to, despite budget reductions, grow our Special Operations Forces. And what will happen is that, that that somewhat larger force will be redeployed. That which has been in Iraq and Afghanistan will now be worldwide. Uh, and also, by the way, not unimportantly, have a chance to reset and uh, be home with family uh, more than they've been able to be. Next, we need to increase our investments in cyber. And again, despite a general reduction in, in our budget, uh, cyber is going up. Three mission areas there. The first is we depend abjectly and totally upon our networks for the excellent performance that we have. And therefore, the defense of our own networks is job one. Uh, secondly, we do pay attention to uh, uh, the, uh, uh, our ability to develop de and deploy and employ cyber weapons as weapons of war on our own behalf. And then third is to play a role which, uh, uh, as the Defense Department, in helping protect the country as a whole and its critical infrastructure from attack, from exploitation, from theft, and so forth. Uh, another area the president wanted protected, countering weapons of mass destruction. That's an area that uh, the Belfer Center and Graham uh, have been leaders in for a long time. You know, we still have a non-Lugar program. It's not denuclearizing uh, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus uh, anymore, but it's still very active and operational. Space. Space, like cyber, is an area where we have a large installed base upon which we depend, and we need to figure out either how to defend it or where that is not possible because of the nature of uh, uh, the orbital dynamics and the inherent vulnerability of an object uh, in space, how to operate without it if we need to. And then again, to uh, have offensive anti-satellite capabilities as needed. Intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, there's a whole lot going on here. You see the predators and reapers uh, at work. Uh, you see Global Hawk, which is the higher altitude platform. There are other things you don't see. Um, and uh, we have an, an innovative effort there to increase the range of our unmanned uh, 
vehicles to operate unmanned vehicles from ships and other uh, areas of innovation in intelligence, surveillance, uh, and reconnaissance that don't involve unmanned uh, aircraft, but other techniques. And finally, our science and technology effort, which has always been critical uh, to, to defense, whether it's electronic warfare, any jamming capabilities, many, many fields uh, of innovation. It's always been the case that the United States Department of Defense led innovation and contributed to innovation at the national level. That is inherently less so than it was in previous eras because there's a larger commercial technology base relative to ours than there used to be, and of course the technology base is global. Um, still in all, there's a leadership role for the Department of Defense, and despite, once again, budgets going down, that is an area that will not uh, go down. And that includes uh, the, uh, the industrial base that supports us. And that as Graham mentioned, the several million employees of the Department of Defense, there's actually more than that. There are several million people who work for us in the defense industry. And they, second only to the people, the quality of the people we have in uniform is what makes the US military the greatest in the world. And uh, I always remind people, we don't make anything in the Department of Defense. It's made in industry, and so the excellence of that industry uh, is uh, something that we also want to, need to, and will protect in the coming era. The tenet of the President's strategy that I really wanted to focus on, though, tonight is our so-called rebalance to the Asia-Pacific region. Um, the rebalance is primarily a political and economic concept, not a military concept. But since I'm the Deputy Secretary of Defense, I'm going to concentrate on the security side, uh, naturally, of the rebalance. The logic of the rebalance is, is very simple. The Asia-Pacific region has enjoyed 60 years of stability and peace. Uh, Today, there's only one exception to that general proposition. That is, of course, North Korea. Uh, it's an important exception to the general proposition about peace and security. Um, and we're responding to North Korea's uh, threats and provocations. We're doing it by defending ourselves, defending our allies. And we're taking a firm but measured approach. But the principal point I want to make in the context of this uh, talk is that North Korea is an exception. It's really the only exception in terms of imminent nation-state aggression in the Asia-Pacific region. This climate of peace and stability has prevailed in the Asia-Pacific region for so long, despite the fact that there has been no overarching security structure, no NATO, to make sure that the historical wounds, which were deep in Asia, as deep as Europe's at the end of World War II, were healed. And during those 60 years of peace and stability, first Japan rose and prospered, and then South Korea rose and prospered, and then Southeast Asia rose and prospered, and today India and China in their different ways rise and prosper. And that's a good thing. All this has been welcomed 
by the United States. But none of this was a foregone conclusion when you consider where Asia was at the end of World War II. While the Asian political and economic miracle was realized first and foremost by the hard work of the Asian people themselves, it was enabled also by the enduring principles the United States has stood for in that region, and also by the pivotal role of American military power over those years. The principles included a commitment to free and open commerce, a just international order that emphasizes rights and responsibilities of nations and fidelity to the rule of law, open access by all to the shared dominions of sea, air, space, and now cyberspace, and the principle of resolving conflict without the use of force. In addition to these principles, it was also enabled, as I said, by the pivotal role of U.S. military power and presence in the region. We believe that our strong security presence in the Asia-Pacific has provided a critical foundation for these principles to take root in those decades. And in one sentence, our rebalance says we're going to continue to provide this foundation into the future. Our partners in the region welcome our leadership and our robust engagement and the values that underlie them. And therefore, I believe that our rebalance will be welcomed and will be reciprocated. It's good for us, and it's good for everyone in the region. And it includes everyone in the region. It's not about any one country. It's not aimed at any one country or group of countries. Our rebalance is reflected in much that we are doing today as the era of Iraq and Afghanistan comes to an end. Uh, first, with respect to our force structure in the region, the rebalance means that a higher proportion of our assets will be there. We announced last year that 60% of our naval assets will henceforth be assigned to the Asia Pacific, as opposed to the Atlantic Theater, which is a major historical shift for the United States. The Air Force, for its part, will increase its posture and presence in the region to include tactical aircraft like the F-22, space, cyber, and bomber forces, ISR assets like the MQ-9 and U-2 and Global Hawk, many of which are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, some of which never existed before Iraq and Afghanistan and now will come to the Asia Pacific Theater for the first time. And we'll be able to leverage more capacity from our ground forces. This may surprise you, but the countries of Asia will see more of the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps in coming years than they uh, have in the past decade. And why is that? Because they've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. And now they're coming home to the Asia Pacific. With respect to presence and posture, we're modernizing and enhancing our forward presence in the region in cooperation with allies and partners. And let me start with Northeast Asia which has historically been the center of gravity for the U.S. presence in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, uh, in Japan, we've added aviation capability with the MV-22 Osprey uh, deployment, upgraded our missile defense posture with an addition of another Tipi-2 radar. We're in the process of realigning the Marine Corps presence in Okinawa and, and including the Futenma replacement facility. And we're working with the Japanese to revise, in a historic way, the defense guidelines that we share with them 
so that our alliance with them, now long-standing, meets the challenges of the future. On the Korean Peninsula, we're taking important steps to advance the alliance's military capabilities to meet the North Korean threat. To include implementing Strategic Alliance 2015, which foresees a number of fundamental changes in the way the USROK alliance is managed so that it is strengthened and sustained into the future. That accompanied with a number of measures to increase the combat power of the Combined Forces Command on the Korean Peninsula. Beyond Northeast Asia, we're enhancing our presence in Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean as well, and this is important. Uh, because we're rebalancing not only to the Asia-Pacific region, but within the Asia-Pacific region in recognition of the growing importance of Southeast Asia and South Asia to the region as a whole. Uh, our focus previously being largely Northeast Asia in association with the Cold War. And we're emphasizing there humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, capacity building, and multilateral exercises. In Australia, for example, our first company of Marines rotated through Darwin last year, a key first step towards using this presence in Australia to engage in bilateral and multilateral exercises with partners in that part of the region. In the Philippines, I just was a few weeks ago, we're working on ways to enhance the capacity of the Philippine Armed Forces and to increase our rotational presence with this key ally, treaty ally, in Singapore, the first of our four littoral combat ships just arrived a few days ago, providing a key capability to work bilaterally and multilaterally with Singapore and other partners in the region. These are just a few examples of how we're increasing our presence in the Asia-Pacific region. Next, let me say something about investments, where we're giving priority in our investments to capabilities that have relevance to the Asia-Pacific region. These include the Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarine, including both the submarine itself and the Virginia payload module for cruise missiles, the P-8 maritime surveillance aircraft, and the MH-60 helicopter. Together, these investments and many more will help the Navy under, uh, sustain its undersea dominance. The Navy is also fielding the Broad Area Maritime Surveillance System, which is basically a marinized Global Hawk, to expand its capacity for ISR and maritime surveillance in the region. The EA-18G, that's the Growler electronic attack uh, aircraft that replaced the Prowler. Next generation jammer that has extensive frequency range and increased agility, all of, we need, all of which we need in the electronic attack and electronic protection areas. In the Air Force, while we've made some reductions in tactical air squadrons worldwide in recent years, basically by reducing older and single-purpose aircraft, we have made no significant changes in our air posture for the Asia-Pacific region. In addition, we continue to invest in the fifth-generation Joint Strike Fighter, a new stealth bomber, the KC-46 tanker, and a host of ISR platforms. The Army continues to invest in ballistic missile defense capabilities that are being employed, witness the recent THAAD deployment in Guam. And more broadly, beyond the scope of traditional force structure elements of the kind I've been describing, we're making big investments in cyber, in various fields of science and technology, space, and counteract at WMD, as I said, all with a focus on the Asia-Pacific region. 
And in addition to investing in technical capabilities, we're also investing in our people, in language and culture skills, and regional and strategic affairs pertinent to that region so that we cultivate the intellectual capital that will be required to make good on our rebalance. And with respect to our basing structure, finally, we're making critical investments in training ranges and bases, such as in Guam, uh, which we're developing as a strategic hub uh, for the Western Pacific, and training ranges like those in the Marianas, Tinian, Saipan, uh, and so forth, tremendous training areas and tra training opportunities. With respect to operational plans, we recognize that the world's changing quickly and our war plans and operational plans need to change as well and we're changing them accordingly. And finally, most important, we're revitalizing our defense partnerships across the region. I've already mentioned the work we're doing in Japan, Korea, Australia, and the Philippines, our treaty partners, but we're doing many other things in other parts of the region as well. For example, last November, we worked with another treaty ally, Thailand, to update the U.S.-Thai joint vision statement for the first time in 50 years. With New Zealand, the signing of the Washington Declaration and associated policy changes have opened up new areas for defense cooperation in areas such as maritime security, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, and peacekeeping. In Burma, Burma, we've resumed limited military-to-military -military relations and we're working to ensure that the Burmese military supports Burma's ongoing and dynamic reforms. With Vietnam, we're expanding our cooperation as set forth in a new memorandum of understanding in maritime security, search and rescue, peacekeeping, and humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Malaysia and Indonesia, where I just was a few weeks ago, were similarly working to build partner capacity to conduct maritime security and humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. With China, we invited the Chinese to participate in the RIMPAC exercise, which is a major multilateral naval exercise that we host, and we're delighted that they have accepted. We seek to strengthen and grow our military-to-military -military relationship with China which matches and follows our growing political and economic relationship. Finally, India, a key element of our rebalance and more broadly an emerging power that we believe will also help determine the broader security and prosperity climate of the 21st century in the region and because the region will be so central to the world's future throughout the world. Our security interests with India converge on maritime security, broader regional issues, including India's Look East policy. We're also working to deepen our defense industrial cooperation, moving beyond a vendor-purchaser relationship to co-development and co-production with the Indians. Multilaterally, we recognize the importance of strengthening regional institutions like ASEAN, that play an indispensable role in maintaining regional stability and resolving disputes through diplomacy. In this regard, we've made attendance at key ASEAN ministerial meetings a priority for us in the leadership, including the ASEAN Defense Minister's meeting, BAS. We're deeply engaged in ASEAN exercises planned this year, including a humanitarian disaster relief exercise that will be hosted by Brunei a counterterrorism exercise that we are co-sponsoring with Indonesia, and a maritime security exercise co-chaired by Malaysia and Australia. 
So there's much, much that goes on and that goes into the rebalance. When I describe the rebalance, I'm usually asked two questions. <clears throat> the first is, can you do it? Can you do it? Do you have the budgetary oomph to carry through on it? And the answer to this question is yes, we can do the rebalance, and here's why. First, as I mentioned earlier, we are shifting the huge weight of effort that we have applied to Iraq and Afghanistan to the region. And the second reason is that within our budget, which is still substantial, we're making investments, especially in capabilities relevant to the Asia-Pacific region. And as you're thinking about budgets and so forth, you need to uh, bear in mind that uh, in addition to having substantial resources of our own, uh, the force that we have has substantial operational experience, which no other military can match. It has built, it is built from the cumulative weight of our effort and spending over many decades. And that's how long, decades, it takes to build a military capability like ours. So for all these reasons, we can do it and will do it. And the second question that people ask is, what about China? Is our rebalance really about China? And the answer is no, it's not about China. It's not aimed at anyone any individual country or group of countries. It's about ensuring the peace and stability that the Asia-Pacific region has enjoyed for 60 years and can continue to enjoy as China, like others before it, rises and prospers. Let me end by saying that in the strategic transition I've just described, we know, we know in the department that we only deserve the amount of money that we need and not the amount of money that we've gotten used to. That's why well before the current budget turmoil of sequester and that sort of thing, uh, we made reductions in the department's budget uh, to the tune of $487 billion over the decade uh, ahead. Uh, that came on top of some sizable reductions we made when Secretary Gates was secretary and I was undersecretary for acquisition technology and logistics. And at the same time we've made those budget reductions, our overseas contingency operations funded, which is funding, which is not included in the base budget, uh, but is an additional appropriation for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and associated costs known as a wartime supplemental. That also is decreasing now that we have exited Iraq and are drawing down our forces in Afghanistan. Taken together, these reductions compare in pace and magnitude to historical cycles in defense spending the nation has experienced in the past, after Vietnam and after the Cold War. And so uh, we are committed to delivering better buying power for the taxpayer and warfighter and giving the country the defense it needs for the budget it can afford. Uh, 
I am uh, leading with the chairman, Dempsey, a uh, review that is both strategic and budgetary right now uh, that will assist us in turning that budgetary corner at the same time we turn the strategic corner. These two great imperatives, these two great currents of strategic need and budgetary need come together on U.S. defense uh, today and in my view, if managed properly, can reinforce one another. And that's our job in this strategic moment. And I, I think that uh, with that proper management, U.S. For, US defense continue, can continue to be, as it has been, uh, a force for good. Thank you. So thank you very much, Ash. Let me explain uh, how the ground rules work now. Uh, there are microphones on the ground floor and in the first loges. Just line up. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Ash uh, one question to start with, and then we'll be open. So the microphones are open. Don't be shy. He's, uh, uh, as you can see, a very nice person as well as very thoughtful. The idea that at this particular time in the American defense transition, We've got to both think about our strategy, so big picture, in the aftermath of wars, and we've also got to think about a big, big turn in the budget. Uh, how often do you have the opportunity to have somebody who's almost equally interested and capable in thinking about both? So I would say uh, the fact that Ash spends most of his nights there slaving away uh, is... Uh, now, maybe not good for his health, but it's certainly good for me as a citizen as a, and a taxpayer. Uh, now, ask you about the budget, okay, to help us understand this a little bit. Uh, because most of us, again, just read the paper, and it's hard to tell. So a billion, even, is a lot. And 529 billion as a basis, and then you get paid extra for wars, and so there's another 80 of contingency operations, or 85. So now we're up to, I don't know, 600 or more. So how to communicate that to any normal person? How much money is that? So I always like to translate it into something that I could relate to. So imagine a new, freshly minted $20 bill. So we start stacking it up here from the floor. So we're stacking it up. Okay. Just a stack of $20 bills. And it goes... Well, and let's imagine then we decide, no, we're just going to stack up $20 bills, not just one stack, all, all this space, the total for them. So how far is that going to go to get the $600 billion? And the answer is about 40 forums. So this is a huge amount of money. I mean, in fact, the, oh, no, the notion that Ash has to try to keep track of all this money and be able to answer questions about it. Extremely hard. So give us just a little feeling, sort of what is it like to think about a budget? I mean, most of us have a hard enough thinking about a budget for $600 or $6,000 or $6 million sounds like a, it is a big number, huge number. But $600 billion, it seems like out of sight, okay? 
Uh, so what about how you're thinking about that in, 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 the, in the sequestration yeah. is too complicated for, for, for <laughs> any, certainly for me to understand. But just give us a sense for what's this doing to you as a manager trying to do your job. Uh, I have never thought of it that, 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 that way. I do think of it in terms of uh, uh, people, though, who serve us. And there are somewhere between, depending on how you count, six or eight million people who directly or indirectly support the defense enterprise uh, in this country, either uh, in the uniform or, or civilian service or in um, in the defense industry. And uh, so you need to think about those people, uh, both in terms of the contributions they have and the skills uh, they, they have, and also where we could do more with less and with fewer people. The unmanned aircraft is just a sort of very small uh, 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 symbol of that. You know, where I start, Graham, is that uh, we can and have to do better at spending the defense dollar. That's necessary for two reasons. The first is in its own right, because every dollar we don't spend in an inefficient way is a dollar we can spend on the, on the force in a useful way. So we've got to do better. And the other thing, the other reason is that if we're going to continue to have the taxpayers' support, for the defense they really do need, uh, we need to prove to them and show them that we're making good use of every dollar they do give us. That's why our constant efforts to uh, 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 economize, to slim down, to be more efficient, to think hard about the things we're doing, and ask ourselves every day whether this piece of what we do is necessary, whether we're doing it in the right way, whether we're doing it the most efficient way. That's hard work, but it has to be done. And, I, and my own belief is that we, we should do that even if we weren't in a budget crunch. But we are in a budget crunch. Um, there are parts, and, and, and we can manage that. Given time, we can manage that. I'll tell you the thing that's bad about sequester, uh, Graham, and that, that is really uh, disturbing, is that uh, the, they were cuts that came very suddenly and very arbitrarily. Uh, we had to remove $46 billion from our spending plan this year. Uh, we needed to do it uh, between now and the end of the fiscal year, and we needed to do it account by account, which any manager can tell you is the dumbest conceivable way to take a budget reduction. And it leads to disgraceful results and unsafe results. And I'll give you an example of kind of how it works. Uh, so when this comes upon us, I tell people, OK, here's, here's how we're going to do this. Certain things are off the table. The president took military personnel off the table and protected that, uh, which is a good thing to do. And it, but the consequence of that is that the cuts had to come from the rest of the budget that was left after you took that off the table. Then um, uh, I told people that they needed to exempt uh, certain activities that are really critical on a day-to-day -day basis for our defense. So the nuclear deterrent, for example, that we can't turn off the nuclear deterrent. 
Uh, you can't turn off the protection of our airspace, which I do every day. I do, I'm responsible for it right now. Uh, Operation Noble Eagle, it's called. And we can't turn off Noble Eagle. Uh, we, I told them they had to protect the war in Afghanistan. You're not going to send people into a war and then short them in the middle of the year. So we had to fully fund the war. So we took those things off the table that were necessary to defense. Uh, then things hit us harder in the operations and maintenance part of the budget. So that a lot of the war is there, particularly for the Army. And the war is actually costing us more this year than we, than we thought it would for a variety of reasons. For example, the Pakistan ground lines of communication were closed for a while, and we had to fly stuff out, which is more expensive. Um, so in those operations and maintenance accounts, you ended up in a situation where once you protected the things that were critical, oh, the, what we call fight tonight in Korea, which God, God forbid we'll never do, but it's the readiness uh, uh, in, in Korea. You can't short that, particularly with what's going on. You take those things off the table and, what you, and then you say, how much money do I have left that is unspent? And then you have to consider that many of our dollars are encumbered in one way or another. For example, they have been obligated earlier in the year because that was a more efficient way to do things, to get a full year contract. Or um, uh, the, uh, a base, let's say a base, just simply to be open, you have to pay for the guards, the lights, and so forth, even if you're not doing anything there. So there are certain costs that can't be compressed quickly. You can't close the base. The base is open. There's a certain amount of cost associated with that. Well, just to make a long story short, where that ends up, Graham, is that you say, how much money do I have left in those operations and maintenance accounts? It's not much. That's why you see standing down flying. We have units that aren't flying. We have ships that aren't sailing. We have a national training center at Fort Irwin where the Army can't afford to send brigade combat teams to do training. We are protecting all the training for all the forces that are scheduled to deploy into Afghanistan. But for other forces that are not scheduled, and of course we don't have a war scheduled for next year, thank God, but we, we are right now eating into the readiness that will prepare the force for next year. This is not safe. Uh, and we're doing our very best to manage through this circumstance, but this is really stupid. Uh, and it's a consequence, it, there's no reason for it. It's not that we don't have the money, our country's not an economic crisis. We haven't invented some new weapon. Uh, peace hasn't broken out. None of that has occurred. It's all just gridlock in Washington, and it's not funny what it drives us to do. So we're doing our very best. What I was talking about is with time, and you can appropriately manage things, and, and, and I'm very prepared to do that as we turn the strategic corner. Doing this sequester stuff is an embarrassment at a minimum, and a disgrace, if the truth be told. You might gather that Ash was not an enthusiast for this. As he said earlier when the legislation was being, or when the, when the debate was being held about whether sequester would be implemented, that he refused to participate in assisted suicide. But he's been cast as 
Dr. Kevorkian anyhow. So to hear, please introduce yourself, a short question and short answers, please. Okay, great. Uh, my name is Richard Witt. I'm a mid-career MPA student here, and I appreciate you being here. Um, I keyed in on the comments. Former Special Forces, or, or current. Uh, yes, sir. Um, so I appreciate your comments about the budget being cut, but Special Forces budget, you know, remaining, remaining higher than some others. Uh, and as Professor Allison said, I've been a SEAL for, for 12 years, and I'll go back to the SEALs when I'm done. So my question has to do with how do you foresee uh, soft forces growing? Uh, you talked about soft going global. Um, I believe we're already, you know, in about 70 countries across the world. And I've previously been an instructor and seen the force grow. So I have concerns sometimes about growing too quickly or at times being asked to do things that might not be soft-specific missions, like if we're asked to stay behind in Afghanistan without uh, the conventional forces. Excellent questions. And the, uh, <clears throat> what has paced our growth in recent years in Special Operations Forces has been attention to quality. Uh, you can't just grow that overnight. These are highly trained people uh, for whom experience is important in the accomplishment of their mission. So you can't just say, I'm going to double the size of soft. So we have been growing them in a measured way in order to retain quality. With respect to what are we going to do with them in the future, a couple of things. First, it is true uh, that the command element in Afghanistan and the enduring presence in Afghanistan will be uh, a special forces command element. Um, that's not large, but it will be there. Uh, the rest of the forces, I said, is going to be doing two things. Yes, it's spread around the world now, but not very thickly. So all the things I described in the Asia-Pacific that we're trying to do, we're trying to support exercises, support other militaries <coughs> to develop themselves so that they can conduct peacekeeping missions, humanitarian missions, so that they obey the rule of law and other things that we value. A lot of that is accomplished by special forces. Uh, and they have not been free to do that in the last decade because they've been so tied up in Iraq and Afghanistan. The other thing, quite honestly, and you probably know this because you have a lot of friends there, is we, uh, we do need to let people rest a little bit. I mean, I, you have friends, I know way too many soldiers, sailor, airmen, and Marines who've been deployed four or even five times over the last decade. They've been away from their families all that time. They've done it. And so it really takes a toll uh, on people. So that kind of deployment schedule where you're deployed so much and have so little time back home is not sustainable over time, just in a human sense. And we know we need to shift that. So those are the two uses to which that capacity will be put. Thank you. Gentlemen in the loads, please. Hi, my name is Will, and I'm a member of the Forum Committee. And I just want to ask you a question that we actually got over Twitter, which is um, civilian furloughs in the Department of Defense currently stand at 14 days. The Navy is asked to eliminate all furloughs. What is the latest? Uh, the, 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 the latest is, this is, by the way, for people who don't understand this issue, um, when you are hit with a immediate drastic necessity to stop spending, uh, what can you do? Uh, you, one place you can go is people. We are stopping a lot of contracts, which means a lot of people who work for contractors who support us will be laying people off. 
and that's unfortunate, it's a necessary, unfortunately, consequence. Uh, we do not intend to lay any federal employees off. In fact, you, it's illegal to do that in a short period of time. Uh, we are considering furlough, which is a process by which people would be uh, would not work one, let us say, one day out of the week for the remaining weeks of the year, and of course wouldn't be paid for that either. Uh, that's a very drastic thing to do to a family or to an individual, and really, and you hate to see even that prospect. Right now, we have told people that all of our 800,000 uh, civilian employees that they are subject to up to 14 uh, days of furlough. And uh, we'll be making in the next few weeks a decision about whether and how many component by component will be furloughed. Those decisions won't be made by individual services and haven't been made. They'll be made by the secretary and myself. Uh, and we'll do that in the next, uh, we'll do that sometime in the next few weeks. Obviously, I am hoping to do the least furloughing that we possibly can because this is not a reward for serving your country. This gentleman. Uh, hello, I am Archil. I am a freshman at Harvard College. Uh, all, of us, all of us know that uh, Iran is developing nuclear program. It's, it is developing nuclear bomb. And uh, sanctions imposed by UN and USA was, did not achieve its goal of halting uh, US nuclear armament program. So what should the USA do in the future to stop Iran from developing nuclear program? And in what case USA may undertake military action against Iran? Thank you. Uh, and I, I, I'm sorry, you, I had difficulty hearing what you say. I think it was about Iran? Yes, Is Iran's nuclear program. Iran's nuclear program, nuclear program. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, uh, I don't have anything new to add to that story, really. Uh, tonight, uh, uh, the president's made it pretty clear what he, where he stands about Iran acquiring a nuclear uh, weapon. Uh, we've also made it clear that in the first instance, the weight of our effort is uh, an international one and an economic and political one uh, that involves the isolation of Iran and uh, sanctions uh, on Iran, uh, which are being felt uh, in Iran, but you don't know what the outcome of that uh, will be. Um, uh, President's made it also clear now for a number of, of years that we've considered alternatives uh, to that approach, uh, politically and uh, economic approach, but that remains our approach at the moment. Please. Thank you for coming here tonight. Uh, my name is John Colonisi. I'm a second year PhD student at the Kennedy School. Uh, You've mentioned quite a few different trends that are going on in the defense spending and the, the approach to defense uh, over the last few years, um, including the pivot to Asia. Uh, and it seems like some of these uh, trends are going, are possibly going to have a, a negative impact on the public image of America in certain parts of the world. Um, maybe the increased use of drones would be a good example of that. And some may have a positive impact. Um, like the drawdown in Afghanistan. And I was just wondering what you think the, the net effect of all of these different trends um, is going to be on America's public image. Um, uh, 
well, I'm, I'm going to tell you the net effect is positive, and, uh, and I need to say why, because otherwise you'll say, well, that's what you're going to say, because that's where, 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 you, where you stand is where you sit. And no, I really, I really mean it. Um, I'll give you two examples of it. The first is, I mean, the Asia-Pacific rebalance that I just described is, as I indicated, welcomed. Um, and uh, because it is a continuation of something that has served the region very well. And I think welcomed ultimately and in many parts of China <clears throat> as well. Um, you know, I'm not one of those people that believes that conflict with China or competition with China is inevitable or even likely. Uh, our political leaders have made it clear that they don't want that and that that's not good for us or anybody else. Nobody in the region wants it. It makes no sense. Uh, and yet, you know, human nature being what it is, you have to work for security. And that's the direction in which we're trying to work. And that's the reason why what we're doing is welcomed in the Asia Pacific region. You mentioned drones. Uh, <coughs> uh, the, we uh, work very hard to make our application of, of drones, uh, as they're called, uh, uh, as careful, as parsimonious, as lawful, totally lawful, both with respect to domestic law and international law. This is everything we do uh, in the Department of Defense, everything we do is scrutinized by law, is passed on by the Department of Justice. So we're very careful to do it in a way that people can accept is consistent with the principles that they believe in and that they think our government ought to stand for. We need that. We need that support. We need that understanding. And in order to get that understanding, we have to act right. And we are. And uh, we need that support because we need to do this to be safe. Please. Uh, I'm Jacob Moscone Skolnik. I'm a Harvard undergraduate. Um, so about 30 years ago, President Reagan first announced SDI. My question is, what do you think uh, the role is going to be of nuclear missile defense systems in the future? And what effect do you think uh, they have and will have on the <coughs> defense relationships you mentioned you're trying to kind of... Uh, it's the, great, great question. It's the 30th anniversary <coughs> of Reagan's so-called strategic defense initiative speech. And I would remember that vividly. It was an entirely different world then. Um, the problem that the President Reagan wished to solve was that the Soviet Union had then 3,000 equivalent megatons atop the SS-18 ICBM, and he wanted to protect the entire country from that, which was a laudable and lofty uh, dream, however technologically a dream. Uh, and we were not able to do that. We were not even able to come close. Uh, today, totally different situation. Our focus of our missile defense programs is on uh, Iran and North Korea and the prospect, not yet realized by either of them, that they might be able to develop and deploy uh, ICBMs. If they do, we're going to defend ourselves. 
against them, and that's the, what our effort is all about, and we can. Uh, so, in the last few weeks, uh, we decided to increase the number of ground-based interceptors at Fort Greeley in Alaska. That is in anticipation of what could happen in Korea in the future. Uh, that is the reason for the THAAD deployment. Sorry, THAAD is another kind of missile defense system on Guam. I spoke to the governor of Guam the other day. Those are American citizens, and they feel threatened, and we're going to defend them. Uh, and uh, we have friends and allies who need to be defended, both from Iran and from uh, North Korea, and we intend to do it. That is doable, much more doable than 3,000 equivalent megatons from the, former, from the, from the then uh, Soviet Union. And I think we've made it pretty clear, and anybody who's technically oriented in this room uh, understands that those defense deployments do not threaten the deterrent of Russia. Ash is actually first piece of analysis that became famous was an analysis of missile defenses back about 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. it was. Are we going to have time for uh, three more questions? This gentleman. Uh, thanks very much for coming to talk to us. My name is Ben Goldsmith. I'm a second year student here at the Kennedy School. Uh, when you were talking about budgets, you mentioned personnel costs and in particular how those are exempted from the sequester. Uh, the question I have is, given that personnel costs have been growing quickly over the last 10 years, about 4% faster than inflation, um, this is one of the things that's been tagged as a long-term challenge for the budget. So how do we manage, you know, particularly with something that's so politically volatile, the, the promises we've made and the crunch we're facing? Yeah, um, it is a major part of uh, our, our budget. <coughs> Just to be clear, it was military personnel who were exempt, uh, not civilians, hence the furlough question, uh, nor, of course, those people who work for us indirectly in, 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 in under contract uh, who, are, who, are, who have no exemption at all. You're right. We have to control personnel costs, including military personnel costs. They have been growing very rapidly uh, over the last decade. <clears throat> and if that trend is continued, we just won't have any money for anything else. Uh, there are several ingredients to that. <clears throat> all of which need to be uh, uh, addressed. Uh, the first is basic pay, which is a sensitive matter. Uh, and uh, we are, have proposed in our 13 budget and our 14 budget uh, uh, not to reduce military pay, but to slow the rate of rise of military pay. Have it more closely match uh, 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 salary growth elsewhere in the economy and elsewhere um, in the government. Secondly, with respect to health care, uh, the um, uh, we are trying to share in and succeeding in sharing in uh, uh, controlling cost growth in health care and in defense in a way that matches similar efforts in the uh, commercial economy and are having some success in that regard. In fact, our, our health care costs are down from $54 billion to $49 billion uh, over the last two years. Um, uh, we have in particular made proposals to increase um, enrollment fees and co-pays for retirees, particularly recent military retirees, where we have very, very um, 
good health care coverage, and we want to continue that, but we aren't going to be able to afford to be that generous uh, in the future. Uh, likewise, for pharmacy, uh, making people do uh, mail order and uh, uh, generics, and on and on and on and on. Uh, this is a big part of our budget, and it needs to be managed in a responsible way like, like, uh, like everything else. Maybe yeah, this will be the last question, okay? Hi, my name is Tina Zuzik. I'm a second year at the business school, and my question relates to national security budgeting as well. Um, so there are multiple players in national security budgeting, not just the Pentagon, but Congress is also heavily involved in this. So how do you propose that the Pentagon deal with uh, what is often an obstructionist Congress to making changes that you see as necessary, especially in you know, either drawing down or eliminating weapon systems or even making changes to programs like TRICARE, how do you see that the Pentagon can deal with Congress in a way that you see as necessary? It, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And, you know, we propose and the Congress disposes. <clears throat> so in the end, it's they get the last word. And <clears throat> so the only way you can get the sensible thing done is to convince Congress that that's a sensible thing to do. Uh, and that is hard, uh, and it is hard for a number of reasons, but the principal one we face right now is what I'll call localism. Uh, everybody, and you can literally read senators and members of Congress who will make the statement, I know we need to cut the defense budget, but not here. Uh, I know we need to cut a defense budget, but I would make an exception here. It's my base, it's some program made in my district, um, and nobody wants it at all. And if we can't defeat localism, we're gonna have a hollow military uh, because we'll do all the wrong things. We'll do all the wrong things. We'll keep tail, not tooth. Um, we will, uh, keep old things and not build new things, because a new thing, by definition, has no mommy or daddy, right? And it's just no, nobody watching over it. So the future has no advocate. Readiness has no advocate. You know, to a first approximation, a, a, a local community doesn't care what we're doing on the base, as long as the base doesn't close and it continues to employ the same number of people. And look, right now, we're not flying at that base. They don't care. The base is there. People are spending money. They come out. They go to the grocery store. Money goes into the local economy. But we're not defending the country. And they don't care. So we have to have better discipline than that. And you know, for me, it means you have to have be on the high ground. You have to explain. First of all, that you have a strategy that makes sense and you have a rationale for why you've decided to spend here and not spend there. And say, I, I'll listen to you, but you, have to, you can't have a local rationale, you have to have a strategic rationale. Uh, second, you need to be on the high ground in the sense that you can't be wasting money. You have to be and appear attentive to the fact that this is the taxpayer's money and that you're doing your best to shepherd it. Uh, and, uh, you know, those are the two high grounds from which we try to fight to do the right thing. And, you know, by God, we're going to do it. 
And if you want to see the wrong thing in microcosm, take a look at what's happening under, under sequester. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to say uh, this is the end for tonight, but Ash is going to come back. So let's say thank you very, very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.